Do you feel like your thoughts control you sometimes? Do you have the feeling that you're always just reacting to life? Do you wish you could have a more calm mind and understand why you make certain decisions and make them better? Well, if you're like me, uh, you probably have heard about or have attempted to try meditation in the past. About 20 years ago, I wanted to understand why it felt like I was always reacting impulsively and making poor choices and poor decisions in my life. Um, after an investigation, I came to the realization that it was because I just had so many thoughts swirling in my mind and I was trying to execute on those thoughts and I was overwhelmed and I needed more space to figure out which decisions were, were really coming from my truth and which were merely just reactions to what life was throwing at me. Uh, I have, if you've had experience meditating, it's possible that you felt like it was very difficult or that you just couldn't sit still for a little while and therefore you gave up on it. Uh, so my guest today is C.T. Tamura. Uh, he is a meditation instructor and Carrie C.T., he happens to have led meditation sits in the middle of Times Square. Now, why is that important? Well, C.T. thinks that meditation is an ongoing built-up exercise. We need to build our muscles the same way we build our muscles when we train in the gym. And so uh, C.T. and I had a conversation about this where we get into why it's important to stick to a regimen and to give meditation a chance and we talk about the benefits of having a calm mind. Uh, Carrie is an excellent speaker. He's also led meditation sits in a variety of settings, mostly to people who don't have a lot of experience. So I think this conversation is really valuable to people who are looking for an entryway into meditation. Uh, and so this just kind of fits with the theme of the Soul Pod. I'm your host, Gary Lewis. I'm somebody who's always exploring and trying to understand how I can make my life better, how I can be a more uh, whole, actualized, invigorated, purpose-driven person. And so this conversation with Carrie is just another extension of that. And the Soul Pod really seeks to provide you with the tools and the power to try to understand your mind, your body, your spirit, so that you can harness and cultivate yourself and your essence and your energy to be able to transform your life in a way that feels like you have control and that you're living in alignment and happiness with yourself. I hope you enjoy this episode and I look forward to sharing it with you. CT, good to see you. You. So, um, I'm going to start out this episode by talking about my friend CT here and how I first came to meet him. And then we're going to go into uh, your bio. We'll discuss what you're up to. And then I'm thinking we'll have a conversation about sort of a continuation of a conversation you and I had recently about um, meditation and its, its popularity now and also uh, the benefit of it not having to do with such religiosity and, and sort of be more of a matriculated uh, daily practice. Hmm. So a uh, quick anecdote about how I met CT. I, um, my cousin Andrea had invited me to a birthday dinner party in Queens, Long Island City, Queens. 
And I, I of course, went because uh, her and I are very close and I was looking forward to it. And I showed up and I'd known most of her friends, but I didn't know any of her friends that had, and I never thought any of her friends would have had an interest in Dharma um, or meditation at all. And so I had no expectations about showing up to this dinner party, um, showed up there and I was placed at the end of the table next to the other, only other guy there. And it happened to be CT. And uh, it was then when Andrea told me, oh, by the way, um, CT is interested in meditation. And so I got to talking, we got to talking and uh, sure enough, not only was he interested in meditation, but he actually has been studied and trained with John Baker. John Baker is a student of Trungpa Rinpoche and Trungpa Rinpoche was the teacher of uh, my former teacher, Reggie Ray of Dharma Ocean. And so the fact that I met somebody who had any interest in Dharma whatsoever, let alone somebody who had a connection to Trungpa, uh, just in the middle of a dinner party for my cousin that I just had no expectation that she would know anybody that knew Dharma, kind of blew my mind. So uh, CT, every time I see him, I feel bad for his partner, Jackie, but I chew his ear off about meditation and all things Dharma. And we can, we can go on for hours about it. So I'm just so thrilled to have him on the show primarily because the whole purpose of the soul pod is really to uh, allow the individual to have content that connects them up with their true essence. And it doesn't it necessarily mean that it needs to be a denominational thing or it has to be a particular strategy or religion or spiritual practice. It really is just anything that allows the individual to inform their own truth, to inform their own connection to their truth. And in talking with CT, I know that uh, he's shared with me that his perspective on meditation and mindfulness is kind of very much aligned with, with this idea. So I'm pretty excited to have you on the show. So thanks, CT, for joining. Thank you for having me. It really was. It was a great, uh, it was a great uh, dinner party for uh, various reasons, but it was, it was a great conversation we had. And it was interesting to, to see that connection. I mean, I guess sort of our lineage, both of our sort of lineages go go back to Chogun Trungpa. So I, it makes sense that we would, I think, connect on certain things. And it's funny too, because like last time we hung out, you know, just to share it, but the last time we hung out afterwards, like my Jackie, my, my wife was like, oh, so you guys got a good bromance going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Meditation the whole time. You know, it's like, it's very, it's rare that I get to nerd out about, you know, meditation, meditation stuff like with, with people. So I enjoy it when I get the opportunity. So thanks for the opportunity again. Here. Yeah, of course. And, and even funnier is that when I see you, it's usually in a family setting for me. So it's either my family and friends and never do I ever get the chance to talk Dharma or meditation with anybody in my family or friends. So the fact that we're having that discussion juxtaposed to that environment to me is hilarious, but I also love it. So really grateful for it. I, uh, and sorry, please apologize to Jackie for me. You get a chance because I know I feel bad. I take you away and it's just, she doesn't get a chance to hang out with everybody there. So I'll, I'm going to do my, my best to avoid doing that going forward. We'll try to, we'll try to limit the discussion and we'll to do it like this. Yeah, exactly. We'll do more on air discussions. Yeah. So I'm thinking, so I, I want to just talk a bit about your background and then, um, you know, I want to, I want to flesh out a couple of, uh, uh, things that I found really interesting that I had actually had no idea that you were up to. And so I'll, I'll go ahead and just talk about CT's back background right now. He's, a, he's currently a teaching mindfulness awareness meditation to professionals in New York uh, at Corcoran City Habitats and Corcoran Sunshine. For those who don't know, those are all real estate development agencies, real estate agencies um, 
CT is a real estate agent. He's a licensed real estate broker or agent. Is that? Associate broker. Associate broker. Okay. Agent and broker is sort of the same thing. Right. Okay. So he deals in real estate is, is what CT does. And which is why I find it so interesting that he has this amazing background and he's a meditation instructor, but um, you know, he's, he's working every day doing, doing a job that um, yeah, I'm sure you benefit from mindfulness, but, but really, I mean, it's, it's, it's a job that anybody would, you know, that, that doesn't have a mindfulness background could be effective at. And so I'm curious to talk about that as well. We'll get into that after the bio. So he's also taught traditional and traditional settings, uh, including New York Buddha Dharma uh, at Nah. Oops, I almost screwed that up. Nahalabodi. That's right. Three Jewels in the Village, the Align Center in Irvington. Which, by the way, I checked out that website, and that's a great website. And there's a lot going on at the Align Center, and um, maybe we can talk about that too. Uh, in conjunction with the Western Buddhist Center, that's the Align Center has a, an alliance with. The, the Westchester Buddhist Center, and schools such as Marymount Manhattan College, Phillips Exeter Academy. Um, he's also been featured in Mindful Magazine and is published in on elephantjournal.com, uh, which is a Buddhist-oriented website, um, as well as his site, thesittingproject.org. And it's important to call that out uh, for anybody who wants to find CT, and we'll mention it at the end of the conversation as well. You can go to the sittingproject.org and that's where you'll find uh, anything you want to know about his background. You'll find out where CT is teaching and what he's up to and ways that you can connect with him um, specifically around meditation. Also, I should mention at this point, CT has a, a personal website, carrytomura.com. Both of these links will be in the show notes. So everybody will be able to access these links once we post the show notes. Uh, whether you're viewing this in video content or in audio content. And at carrytomur.com, that's where CT, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's where you talk, discuss mostly your real estate, your real estate dealings and what you're up to in real estate and the happenings and all the cool stuff that, do you link to Instagram from there? Because you have a lot of videos on Instagram about real estate. Yeah, so I, I have, I mean, carrytomur.com is, is focused, it's my website uh, for real estate, me as a real estate agent, but I do talk about, uh, mindfulness in real estate on that um, on that website, and I do link to. Uh, I have a, my uh, moniker on uh, Instagram is uh, the real estate nerd underscore NYC, uh, but you can you can get to there from from uh, carrytomorrow.com. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to I want to mention too. We were just talking about it that uh, CT was recently featured in a South Korean TV documentary about Buddhism in the West. And, um, and the book Public Meditations, along with the likes of Jack Kornfeld and Sharon Salzberg. Uh, it's big news. And uh, so, so a little bit about CT's earlier background. He started studying and practicing meditation in 2004 when he became a student of John Baker, one of the founders of Naropa University, um, the Westchester Buddhist Center, New York Buddha Dharma, and uh, this is all John's background, and a student of Tr Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, which we just talked about, a proponent of meditation in public, CT regularly leads sits in Times Square. Imagine that. He's leading meditation sits in Times Square. Uh, CT currently works in real estate at the Corcoran Group. He ran his own music marketing and promotions company, and he spent some time as a consultant on Wall Street. What, what hasn't CT done? <laughs> When not teaching or working, CT could be found hiking, snowboarding, making music, or spending time with his lovely wife and newborn daughter. And how old is she now, actually? 
She, she is a year and a half. All right. So, so actually, I, you know, I, I don't think I got a chance in our lengthy discussion the other day to ask you about that. How has, how has your meditation and practice informed you uh, in, your, in your fatherhood? Like, what, what has it meant to you? You know, <laughs> so the, one, the first thing, my first reaction is that it's made it a lot harder for me to, to practice regularly because I lack sleep and, and uh, I, I'm tired all the time. And I have like half the time I used to have uh, because not only are we, well, especially during the quarantine, right? Not only was I uh, trying to work uh, each day, but also I'm trying to take care of a kid with, you know, granted, I have a lot of help with my w- wonderful wife, but like, it's a lot of work taking care of a toddler and trying to work and trying to exercise and trying to cook f- good, healthy food and trying to meditate every day. It's made it a lot harder. But I think that the, you know, the thing that, um, the thing about that, that it, it, the practice I think informs me and, and helps me with um, when I'm trying to parent and be with my daughter is a reminder to be present with my daughter. Because, you know, one thing that's amazing about young kids is they're like super present about what, what there ever is in their focus. They're not necessarily like aware of everything that's going on, but if they're like looking at you, like when my, when my kid like looks at me, it's like she's staring into the depths of my soul. It's like, it's like she is totally there with me and she's so perceptive to whether or not I'm there or not. You know, mm-hmm. she really can tell like, and, and it's not like, you know, but if you, if you're pre- like when I'm present with her, I can see that, um, that, that sort of nuanced uh, uh, awareness of like whether I'm there for her, you know? So it's like, it's, it, it reminds me to, I try to be really present with her when I am present with her and when I'm, when I'm interacting with her. And, and like, you know, just for the parents out there, like, you know, I've been meditating for 16 plus years and teaching for years. And it's like, it's hard, man. A lot of times I'm just like, okay, I'm on autopilot. Like I just woke up and I'm just like, here, let me change a diaper. I'm like doing it with my eyes closed. It's not like, you know, it makes you superhuman necessarily, but, but it, it does help, you know? Yeah. I'd imagine that you don't expect to be every time she's sitting there piercing through your skull, through your soul with her eyes that you expect that you're going to be on in a way that is consistent, you know, throughout the day, particularly with everything you have going on. I mean, um, but I'd imagine your practice is serving you, you know, benefits you in some way that you're able to at least perceive that that's happening. And probably when that's happening, I'd imagine it kind of kicks you into gear a little bit because we learn so much about secure attachment. You know, we learn so much about uh, how children are, how perceptive they actually are and what, what effect that perception has later on. And so um, I'd imagine that somebody who's at least paying attention to kind of where they are in relationship to their child probably has a, a ton of benefit, you know, immediately and then also down the road. It's, a, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I think that they, you know, kids are so much more perceptive um, that especially like young kid who like, like under two, who doesn't really speak a lot, doesn't have a lot of words, but she's, way smarter and way more perceptive than her communicative abilities are. So I think it's easy for us as adults to kind of dismiss them in terms of what they understand and what they don't understand. But every once in a while, we catch her paying attention to like, she's on the other side of the room and 
you know, my wife and I will be having a conversation and she'll like say something in response to the conversation that we're having. And we're just like, wow, where, where, how did you know that we were talking, you know? And, and I think that that's, you know, so like exactly to your point. And then, you know, the other thing too, is that I think that the lesson that I I'm taught by or constantly taught by my daughter and being present with her is that when I'm not present with her, it's like, I'm like half-assing, you know, taking care of her or interacting with her because I'm stressed out or worried about something that I have to do in the future. Whatever the work is I have to do or wherever I have to go, if there's somewhere to go later in the day. Um, and, And I end up doing both things poorly, right? And so it's like a disservice to both my kid and myself you know, by, by not being present with what I'm doing at that moment, whatever that is. And it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to like focus plan for the future or work on something, then go do that. If you're going to like play with your kid, then do that. Um, but don't, don't kind of try and split the, the, your, your attention because you'll just, you know, do both ineffectively, <laughs> you know, and I think that's true of like, you know, life uh, and, and all the things we do and especially in like professional, um, way. I think that that's super important as well. A lot of times our anxieties about the future and, and worries about the past kind of get in the way of our taking care of whatever the task is at hand that we have, you know, and then we do a poor job. at it. Would you say, is that what got you into Buddhism in the first place? This awareness that you wanted to have your attention in one place or walk us through kind of what, what connected you to Buddhism. And if you could actually Provide a little bit of background about your upbringing, how you ended up in New York, and what drew you to Buddhism. Sure. Okay. So uh, the the quick bio is I was actually born in Manhattan. Okay. Um, my parents met in an elevator in the Condé Nast building in the early seventies. Wow. And uh, not to date myself, uh, but the <laughs> uh, soon after I was born, and uh, my earliest memories are from the city, and then we moved out to Connecticut, um, and I actually moved. I went to sort of uh, school in, in, in Connecticut, then I went to boarding school in New Hampshire, um, and then I came, uh, went to college upstate, and then I came back to the city after college. And I've been here most of the time, except for three years I spent in Boulder, which was a, a very cool place to, to be from a, a meditation perspective for a while. Um, and, you know, what happened when I came to um, meditation was not because I was looking to be like perform better at my job or have you know, more patience or anything like that. I actually was having a, um, I had a, some crazy, a crazy year, crazy series of years. I actually was a full-time musician from about 99 to 2000, almost 2004. And, um, and right around that time, towards the end of my time as a full-time musician, one of the things that happened was I realized that I was like a, I was just a, a like a pain in the ass artist and I didn't want to do work that was, um, you know, uh, for people like people like I could do commercial production where I would create tracks. People would be like, I need a track that's like this. And, you know, um, if you can make it 30 seconds long or a minute and 30 seconds long, blah, blah, blah. And I realized I just wanted to make music for music's sake. I wanted to make art essentially uh, music. And, um, and so towards the end of that period as a, as a musician, I, I started, you know, I, I started having a bunch of issues. I had a really bad year where I was like, my band broke up. I uh, broke up with my girlfriend or my girlfriend. Yeah, I guess I broke up with her. 
But, uh, you know, I was getting evicted from the place I was living on the Lower East Side, not because I had done anything wrong, but because the building was sold and I was on a month-to-month lease and I was running out of money um, and, and, and just, and I had this falling out with a, uh, some good friends and it was just like a really, really tough time. And, and I remember sitting down one night, like in this apartment. Um, and I was just like, I was, I had to just take stock in my life. I was, I was miserable. I really was having a tough time. And, and I, I just started looking at what my issues were, like what the problems were and why I was dealing with them. Like, why was I in the situation that I was in? I kept, I sort of asked myself this and at a time when I wasn't super emotional about it, I could just sit and kind of really think about it and, and, and inquire. Like I was genuinely curious, why am I having all the, all these difficulties in life? And it became pretty clear to me at that moment that a lot of my uh, difficulties were of my own making. They were of my own decision-making process. And, and the decisions that I had made, the choices that I had made in my life led me to that point. And, and, there, and when I realized that, I was like, oh, I need to, I need to reevaluate. I need to re- take stock in who I am and what I'm doing. And I need to kind of figure out, I need to look for ways to make better decisions for my life and for myself and for the people around me and, and for, for everything. And, and it was that, that kind of desire to, to look inward and see what it was that I was doing more clearly that led me to uh, meditation. And more specifically, it was a, I'll never forget it. It was a book uh, called Buddhism Plain and Simple by a Zen guy named Steve Hagen. Um, and he, I read this book. My, my friend recommended it to me. He was like, he's like, listen, man, he, he, he knew I was having a tough time. He's like, listen, go to, the, go to Barnes and Noble, go to the bookstore, go to the self-help section and like, you know, uh, and then find three books that the, that the titles of which, you know, appeal to you. And, and then just go buy them and read them and see what, see what happens. And I don't know if I did that exactly, but I did. I went into the, I went into the um, bookstore and I, and I found this book, Buddhism Plain and Simple. I liked the title, whatever it was. And I picked it out of, out of the air, basically. And, and I went home and I read it. And from that moment on, my life was totally changed. And it, it was like from, from that moment, I, when I read the book, I was just like, this book explains everything that I feel is like correct about the universe and the way things work, um, correct about me as, as a person and us as people. And, and it's got a name and the thing is called Buddhism and the, the, the practice is meditation. And I had never had experience. I had very little exposure to anything Buddhist or, um, uh, you know, meditation wise prior to that. And then from that moment on, I think I read only like, Buddhist text for about seven years, you know, and, and before I, before I like had gotten my fill and I was like, okay, I can like read some fiction now, <laughs> you know? So I, I love hearing those stories of, of how people arrived at it. Typically when I talk to people about what drew them to Buddhism, it's some form of suffering. Um, and, and the way that they actually get turned on to it is, is usually kind of like a funny anecdote like that. Like you go into Barnes and Noble, you're in the self-help section and it led you on this journey. 
And similar to, so my, my experience with it is kind of similar in the sense that I had, I was going through a lot of suffering one year. I mean, a lot of terrible things happened in succession and, um, it was around Christmas time and I was in a relationship that I think we both knew it was going to go anywhere, but we had to buy each other a Christmas gift kind of thing. And, or we felt like we had to. So she, we were in Costco together of all places. And, uh, I saw a book with the Dalai Lama's face on it. He was just smiling. And I think it was the art of happiness. And I pointed at it like, man, I really want to learn what that guy has going on. And she remembered that. And so for Christmas, I got the art of happiness. And, um, cause I like, I think I perused it while in, it was price club at the time while in Costco. And when I looked at it and finally, when I read it, same deal for me, I kind of just set me off to the races. And around that time, in, at least in Long Island, where I was living at the time, there there weren't really any sanghas. I mean, there weren't really almost no places I could go. I mean, New York City I could, but at that point, uh, I hadn't been living in the city yet. So I was trying to find places where I could kind of connect. And there were maybe one or two in all of Long Island, one or two Buddhist centers. Um, and I ended up finding them, going there. And I, sort of the rest is kind of history for me. And same deal where I was just reading Buddhist texts pretty much exclusively for a while. And, um, I don't think I quite got, I mean, you really, you really got into it and I want to, good segue actually is to try to understand what, at what point did, at what point did you realize you wanted to teach meditation or that you wanted to, you knew you wanted to be somebody who's kind of, yeah, just taught meditation or taught mindfulness. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think that after I've, I've always said that I think after you've meditated long enough and studied uh, meditation and, and, and Buddhism, uh, particularly long enough, I think that there are, I think that there are doors of perception that open, and I think that there are corners that you turn, you know, metaphorically. And once you those things happen, I think at a certain point, the only thing that makes sense is to actually try and teach or share. You know, I mean, I, I because it's such a life changing practice when it's done with dedication and a little bit of, you know, intention and study that like to not share this wholly positive experience. And, and I like to think of it almost as a tool set. It's like a life skill set, you know, more than it is a religion. Uh, you know, it's, it's to me, it's, it's a, it's these tools that are taught uh, from generation to generation and through books and through teachers and, and, and these skills that you can learn and then apply to your own life. And to not like at least try and put those, you know, give those tools to the people out there that could benefit from them, that would be like a shame, you know? So to me, it, it feels like a, a natural and uh, in, almost inevitable conclusion to a lot of, to a lot of practice and study. Um, and so, you know, and I think that it was, but I, I can't take full credit on the, on the teaching side. I started the, the sitting project um, as a website uh, several years before I um, <clears throat> started teaching. And that was to share it, to share. I was getting a lot of questions from people about meditation. This is now, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. I, I forget exactly how many years ago I started the site. But, um, and I was getting a lot of questions in real life. Like just people were asking me, they're just like, hey, you know, um, I, you meditate, right? CT's like, tell me about it. Like I'm hearing about it. It was starting to really kind of permeate pop culture a little bit more. And, and so what happened was I wasn't really trying to teach, but I wanted to share my experience. So I started filming uh, videos 
of of me sitting of just like literally it was like one of those the first videos i did i was like i was like this would be great i'll do like a 20 minute video of me sitting doing nothing and it'll be like part performance art and part <laughs> like you know like people people will be like have you ever watched a video of somebody meditating like maybe you haven't like so i i would just sit there like this you know, not moving for like, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And I started posting them. I started posting them on Facebook and so on and so forth. And then I created the site to both try and start answering some questions and then also, uh, you know, post these videos. And what I realized too, um, around that time, and part of the reason I called it the sitting project, as opposed to the meditation project or, you know, whatever uh, uh, you want to say, is because I realized at that time, especially, meditation was still very, um, it was still very viewed to me as like a new agey spiritual kind of thing. And it went along like to me, you know, or to a lot of people, I think at the time it went along with like crystals and incense. Like you couldn't get away from like meditation, talking about meditation without people cracking jokes about, you know, I, I don't know, like, you know, some kind of, some kind of thing that I don't really uh, resonate with. Um, and to me, it was this practice of mind, almost like, like, you know, I, I always like to say it's like going to the gym for your mind. And, um, and to me, that was a better way to communicate this to the people that I knew, like living in New York city as a professional or not as a professional, but a lot of professional friends and like people who were like hardworking, like, you know, hard partying, like New Yorkers, like we love to go out and have drinks and dinner. We love to work hard, you know, and, and like a lot of people that I know are very turned off by the idea of like, if you start talking to them immediately about their chakras, or if you talk to them about, you know, that they need to carry around a certain uh, uh, type of stone or crystal in their pocket. Like if you talk to me about that stuff, even now I'm like, you know, this is not, this is not for me. Like you, like you and I are not on the same page on this stuff. You know, um, and and so I think that that was where I started getting into it um, was I just saw this need to present information on meditation in a different way than it was commonly presented. And I really disliked the 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 kind of I don't know what other I like I, I always use the term new agey spiritualism, which I, I have a little bit of a negative connotation with. But like that, these, these kind of very ephemeral kind of ways of presenting meditation, to me, it, it can be presented so in such a solid, definite way um, that I felt the need to present it that way. And that's why I started with that. And then um, uh, I wanted my peers to, to be able to understand it better and not be turned off by uh, the idea that, oh, you're trying to like bring me into a religion or a cult or something like that. I wanted to be able to say, no, this is a practice. This is like, this is like, if you were like training to like play baseball, I'm going to teach you how to play baseball of the mind, you know, be a, be a great base, baseball player, you know, of the mind, you know? Um, and, and what, what tipped it from creating the website and then doing sits, public meditations, leading them, but not really teaching uh, was actually when I came back to New York after being in Boulder for a few years, um, about five years ago, I was actually going to uh, a group called Dharma Junkies with Joe Mauricio, who is also a, a, a Shambhala guy and a fantastic teacher. 
and, and a good friend. Um, and Joe, after, I guess after talking to him about stuff and, and going to the, um, uh, the group, uh, Joe asked me to start sort of leading meditations occasionally and filling in for him. And then I ended up taking over the group and doing it for, uh, you know, every week for some time. And, and that was really, so like, if I had to say anything, I would have to thank Joe Maurizio for like drawing me in. I think he saw that maybe I, maybe I just needed a little, little push to, to kind of jump over the edge of, uh, of fully diving into, uh, you know, teaching. So was Joe at, at that time, would you say that you had, um, if you were to talk about like a root guru, they, they say in, in Buddhist speak, or your root teacher, the one teacher that resonates with you the most, um, I know you trained with John Baker and who would you say was sort of the most influential on, on just in your path generally? And then obviously Joe kind of pushed you towards teaching, but was he also the person that you connected with the most? Um, you know, I would say that John Baker was, is really, if you, I had a root guru, it would be John Baker. Um, I, and not taking anything away from Joe, I think he's a fantastic teacher. I, I feel like, um, John was, so, you know, picking up from like the, you know, where I read Buddhism, Plain and Simple by Steve Hagen, who was a Zen guy based in Minneapolis or something like that, um, you know, I started reading, I read a couple, both of his books. Then I started reading, I, I had a friend who was a yoga teacher, a fantastic yoga teacher and uh, Kira Lee uh, Yelenchich. And she was like, um, she was like, she introduced me to actually Chogum Trungpa, some of his books, I think uh, Shambhala, Path of the Warrior, and maybe one or two other books of his. And I found, I also started reading um, The Shambhala Sun which was a magazine, you know, meditation magazine, I'm sure you're familiar with, which is now called Lion's Roar, right? Um, and I read that magazine cover to cover. At like every, it came out, it comes out every two months. I read it, everything in it. Like I couldn't get enough of it for years. And I read a Pema Children book. And when I read Pema Children, I was like, she's amazing. Like she is my favorite Buddhist writer of all time for sure. Um, the places that scare you was so resonated with me. And when things fall apart, these are amazing books to me. You know, she was so wise and she's able to communicate this stuff in such a simple way, such plain language. But, but the, the wisdom there, it's just like, it really cuts through like confusion, right? Like in the, in the way. And, and, um, and so I realized, I was like, oh, you know, Shambhala, like Shambhala publications, all this payment children stuff and the Shambhala Sun, they're all related. And then I looked, then I looked it up and I was like, there's a Shambhala Center in New York City. And it's like this mix of Tibetan and Zen Buddhism. And it was started by Chogun Trungpa. I was like, oh, I got to go there. So I started going to their Tuesday night Dharma gatherings and, and it was it was awesome. And I, I loved it. And, and so I was going religiously. And then I, I listened to John Baker, who was my favorite teacher at the time I'd seen him uh, talk. And then I, I took a you know, class and he was the teacher of the class. And then one night he's talking about, um, you know, the, uh, the teacher, the teacher and the student relationship and how, and he was encouraging people. He was like, you know, you, you got to go find a teacher. If you're serious about this, find a teacher and, and go study with them, you know? And I went up to him right after the talk and I was like, Hey John, I'm, I'm CT Tamora. You're my teacher. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, Oh, he's like, uh, you know, I live in Westchester 
And, um, you know, I only am down here once in a while. And, and I was like, that's fine. I'll drive to Westchester. I'll come to you. And, and for a while he was like, and then, and, uh, he was kind of like, eh. and then I was just, I was sort of relentless about it. And, and he took me on as a teacher, as a student and, and then sort of, you know, and the rest is sort of history and we've become really good friends. Uh, I, I love John. I think he's an amazing uh, person and an awesome teacher, you know? Um, one of the things you and I talked about recently was, you know, here's John Baker with these are in Pema Chodron, Reggie Ray. These are all direct uh, students of Trungpa Rinpoche, arguably one of the Tibetan Buddhist teachers who brought Buddhism to the West. I mean, many people credit him with kind of, you know, bringing the awareness, at least creating a lot of awareness around Buddhism to the West. And, um, you know, what always blows in John Wellwood, there's a, I mean, the list goes on and on. There's a bunch of, you know, teachers who've absorbed amazing uh, content who then went on to develop their own styles and their own ways of teaching and have so much to offer. And I just can't get over the fact that not enough, in my view, not enough awareness, not enough public awareness it is, is built around um, the amazing body of work and the amazing knowledge base that these teachers have. It just blows my mind. Yeah, I... I so agree with you. And it's like, when I listen to John Baker talk, and when I listen to Joe Mauricio talk, and when I listen to guys, uh, like there's a guy named John Barbieri in, uh, in Fort Collins, Colorado, that I, you know, a lot of, I don't know if many people have heard of him. These guys are amazing teachers. And that's, that's the whole thing about like, the Buddhist lineage, right? It's like, it is passed from generation of ge to generation of teachers, and you have the accumulated wisdom of thousands of years that is that is all residing in the teachers of today, guys like John Baker, and and like, you know, you can pay ten bucks and sit in a class with him with you know ten or fifteen other people every Monday night on at sixty four Fulton Street, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like. It, it, like people should be, you know, you, you should be willing to pay thousands of dollars and, and dedicate your life to this stuff, you know, and, 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 but, you know, that's, that's the, where we are. And, and I think that part of that too is, you know, uh, part of that too is also motivating for me. And I think maybe for you too, right. Is that the reason that we kind of want to do this is because we want to get this out to people. We want to share this this knowledge that has been handed down that is transformative and wholly positive and, and, and just, you know, enjoy it. <laughs> it's always funny to me when people talk about the, the books that first turned them on to Buddhism. Um, you just mentioned one of them, but I always hear people say it's Pema's when things fall apart. And I think it's because a, Typically people are brought to Buddhism just because they're experiencing suffering and they need, or they're looking for a new way of thinking about how they reference themselves, how they reference their awareness, why this keeps happening to them. And there's typically the sense of things have fallen apart, right? And so what, what an amazing title, whoever, whatever publisher designed that one for Pema, good, good for them. Because I, when I read it, of course, when I was going through a crisis and things were falling apart for me, um, just the way that she structured that book and it, the way that she discussed, you know, her, she was a, she was a wife you know, and a mom and she had real experiences. She wasn't a Buddhist. She never, she didn't have any ideas that she'd go on to become living Gampo Abbey in, in Nova Scotia and be a student of Trungpa Rinpoche and have this 
devout following of, of people who are, you know, who would absorb every word that she speaks in terms of her accumulated wisdom. She was just trying to find answers. I mean, she was living life and doing her best. And the fact that 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 is true, I mean, the fact that it's, it's a great reminder that you don't need to be, you don't need to set out to try to be an enlightened being to benefit from um, mindful te- techniques and mindful practices. And, and I, I, you know, I'm grateful for the suffering that I've had that allowed me to kind of have the, the benefit and the desire to seek beyond the comfortable, automatic, programmed way that I was living. And one of the things that we discussed the other day, one of the terms that you used, which I really like, and it's on your website, is you talk about meditation, you talk about sitting in terms of being like a bicep curl for the mind in terms of like, you know, being a, a, a muscular curl. And so with that, I want to understand a little more about, I know now that you're teaching for certain corporations and you're teaching, you teach meditation to uh, real estate professionals. Uh, in addition to, by the way, your, your really insightful videos on Instagram and social media, particularly Instagram that help people walk through the, the process of buying a new home or um, just, just anything about sort of real estate awareness and, and, and facts and, and sort of these little anecdotes that people might not be aware of, specifically in New York City, which is its own animal within real estate. Um, so the fact that you tie it all together and the other day when you told me that you offer mindful tours, mindful touring of properties, where did that come from? And, and what's, the, what's the idea behind it? Because I think it's genius, personally. I think the idea, I can't tell you how many times I have, you know, mostly I've done rentals in New York City. So I've rented a place and I was like, this is going to be an amazing place. It's got X amenities. It's got, it's by the water. I could, you know, the subway's there. It's got all these great things going on. And then I get in the play and I got a great deal maybe. And then I get into the apartment and then all of a sudden there's this like weird smell coming around that just is intolerable. Or there's a little creak going on to the staircase that's so resonant that it like reverberate little things that like I would never have even considered. Um, and then when I get in my space, I sit there and I'm like, how the hell did I arrive at this place? I mean, what, what made me think this was a good apartment? So the idea of a mindful walkthrough to me is just like gold. And I'm hoping anybody listening to that shares the same view because I, I think it's a great thing. Thank you. I, you know, I'll give you the perfect example. Like, so, um, subways there, there, I can't tell you how many apartments I've been in where, you can hear and feel the subway rolling underneath the building, right? Shaking the building and rumbling. Um, but a lot of times it's kind of subtle and it's low pitched. And so like when you're in the middle of it, when you're just walking through a, an apartment and maybe there's, you know, noises outside or maybe you're talking and the real estate agent is talking and showing you the place or whatever, you know, it's so easy to miss something like that. And I've seen it happen in listings of my own where people, you know, walk through and they're like, they don't, they don't necessarily catch that. And, and it's like, the, the thing is, is that I, I came to it uh, actually when I was doing real estate out West in, in Colorado. And um, I was looking for, I was just kind of looking for ways to integrate like my practice a little bit more into my, into my professional life. Um, it's, it's just naturally integrates, I think, to, into anyone's professional life in the sense that the more present you are with a situation, particularly difficult situations or negotiations, the, the better 
uh, I think you can, or, you know, in, in, with Buddhist terminology, you'd say the more skillfully you can uh, interact with that situation, right? So I find that very helpful in terms of reading people uh, and, and, and reading between the lines of what they're saying and what, they're, uh, what they actually mean um, is perception, right? Uh, increased per- better perception, perception of what's actually going on in that moment. But like that awareness of like what is going on in the space around you, which is really important when you're trying to choose a home or, or a place to work, you know, whatever it is, like that is the kind of thing that you need to be calm and you need to be focused and you need to be open and aware of your environment in order to catch some of those little things, smells, like, like, you know, I can't, like, I remember I was walking uh, into one place and there was like a cat pee smell in this place in Chelsea. It was like a walk up and we said, walk up to this, you know, the top floor and look at this penthouse apartment and my folks were starting thinking to buy. And they're like, oh yeah, like great place, blah, blah, blah. And then we, we walk down and walk out and I'm just like, oh man, the smell is like not good. And we walk out and we're talking about the place afterwards. And, and they're like, yeah, and that smell. And they're like, what smell? What were you talking about? It's like, oh, there you didn't smell the, the cat smell? <laughs> and it's like, and 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 there's no way that they would have missed it if you had pointed it out, but they were so like involved with whatever their their thoughts were or whatever they were worried about or thinking about, they just missed things like that. And so that's both the benefit of working with a real estate agent, but it's also would be the benefit of doing of having of, of being a little more present. Um, and worrying a little bit less about whatever your the agenda is in your head that's got that's sort of like grabbing your attention as opposed to what's actually happening to you you know at that moment what's in front of you so 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 besides in the real estate setting you're also doing these corporate meditation um, programs I guess courses are they are they just sits that you're running or so um, so I just I'm I'm doing I have in some cases I'm doing regular meditations. Um, so I typically do like the typical thing is an hour long uh, session where I do the first 30 minutes, I will do meditation instruction and a short talk, you know, so I'll teach people, you know, how like meditation technique. And oftentimes I'll try and, you know, give a, like a, a short talk and relate it to how it helps us be better workers and better human beings. And, you know, helps us interact with the world uh, more skillfully again. And, um, and then for the second 30 minutes or so, I usually do uh, a guided meditation um, where I typically will do a body scan and show people how to relax and then uh, fo- focus on the breath and sort of typical you know, meditation techniques. Um, and one of the things that I do, and one of the things that's important to me to do is I do it in using plain English. You know, I, I don't, like to use a lot of uh, traditional Buddhist terminology. Um, you know, I talk about mindfulness, awareness, meditation, not shamatha vipassana meditation. Um, occasionally, I'll throw a little lingo in there if I, I feel the need to like show that I know what I'm talking about. But I really prefer to stay away from it because I I don't. To me, it, it's not. You can if you're really nerdy about your meditation, you can make. Uh, you can make it a, a viable argument that, you know, using the term Vipassana for awareness meditation has connotations that don't exist in English language using the word awareness. I don't think that those are important to people who are learning to uh, meditate. 
You know, that's, that's really like another, that's somebody who's already got a meditation practice, you know, and I'm not as concerned with those people. Like they can go and, and study and like, I enjoy studying that stuff too. But when I'm teaching, I really like to teach people in plain colloquial English, you know, and, and like swear if I need to like a good New Yorker or like, you know, whatever it is to, to, um, to communicate this stuff because it, the the thing that I think turns a lot of people off with uh, learning meditation and and getting into it in, in many cases is that it feels very foreign because all the practices that have come to us here in the U.S. and New York City and the West are are all you know originally Eastern practices. Um, I mean, there I shouldn't say all of them. There are sort of meditative practices i think in you know different western religions as well but really the meditation we're talking about and when we talk about mindfulness meditation or awareness meditation we're talking about an, uh, an eastern practice that has been imported to the west and 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 what i don't want and i think a lot of people don't like and it feels almost icky in some ways is is the trappings the religious trappings the the cultural trappings that accompanied the teachings when they came to the west and it's not, you know, some people are more open to it than others, but I think when you go to the sort of the average person in the U.S. or certainly the average person, you know, in New York City, and you talk to them uh, about meditation, the, again, like when you start talking about chakras or you talk about the six paramitas or you talk about, you know, the noble truths, like it starts to feel like religious language to me. And, and I just, I personally do not want another religion. I, I don't see it as a religion. It is a practice. It is a practice of mind. It is a way of being. And it is a skill set of tools that you can learn and, and, and to help you become more aware, you know, a more fully realized person. But it doesn't require the cultural droppings to, to, to learn. And so for me, that's always been super important in terms of the way that I communicate stuff about meditation. Yeah, I I I, uh, I have an issue when very often I'll talk to people. Some some are very advanced in their training, their Buddhist training, and I'll hear things like, I'll just hear opinions that to me ring of so, what I call or what you people refer to as sangha exclusivity. Um, so you know we're doing it right, our lineage has it right, or you know our our style of sitting is accurate, the postures we whatever it is the. Is, is, is the best or is right anybody else doing it the same you find in any other spiritual tradition um, and it's funny because I think that it specifically with Buddhism there's a sense that because it's intended you, you know the Bodhisattva path you're intended to be um, you know operating or living in a way that is intended for the harm reduction of sentient beings and to, for the benefit of others that it's not possible to co-opt it and it's not really possible to make it sort of a narcissistic endeavor or to kind of um, have exclusivity about it. And in reality, of course it is. And I've seen it a lot. And actually it's driven me away from certain um, groups, certain teaching, you know, certain, certain areas where uh, I feel like there's a, enough of a collective sense that it's kind of their way or the highway. I definitely tend to draw back and recoil from. Um, and so on some ways, I almost feel like it's almost worse in Buddhist circles than in other areas because people tend to be highly intellectual and there tends to be a sophistication component to it. And sort of, you know, I, it could just be my own perception, but I definitely have been 
shocked and surprised, like on certain retreats that I've been on where I'm, you hear someone say something and you're like, wait a second, that's not supposed to be happening here. But it's, you know, it's, it's society like anywhere else. It's just another place where people go to do what they think is right, to practice in the way that they believe is right and to live in the way that they live. It's just, it seems more offensive in that setting, I think. Um, and on that note, what I'm curious about is, you know, I've been to certain, um, when I've been to retreats, very often they'll have, you'll have a, a retreat um, a manager, retreat container host, or how, a lot of different terms for it. But there'll be, there'll be instructions given about, very specific instructions about, depending on the tradition that you're um, studying in, a tradition you're practicing in, about how to sit, um, about kind of what the practice is aimed at. And, and I find that specifically for beginners, um, it, it can really go one of two ways. It could, it could lend itself to people who really need guidance, who feel like they're, it's, it's benefiting them to have a very direct and, and um, specific way of actually practicing. And then in others, I've talked to who um, I have friends that I've said, hey, you should check out this Sangha, you know, given the fact that you kind of like the teachings that I talk about. And they'll go and say, wait a second, that was a little too much for me. That was a little too, you know, too, too much, too much specific specificity about how I should be operating as an autonomous person. And there's some sort of recoil from that. And so I'm curious because you are giving these types of meditation uh, teachings in a corporate setting. Um, we talked about this the other day when somebody is experiencing discomfort with, or they, you know, they feel that they're just not getting it. Um, and that med- therefore meditation likely isn't really going to be a benefit to them. What's your perspective on, or how do you handle a student that ha- has that sort of an approach or that sort of a uh, reaction? So I think that the, you know, you know, you've, you've brought up a lot of interesting and important points. Um, I think that how you, how I handle students who are saying, you know, this just doesn't work for me. Like I can't sit there and like, and, and quiet my mind and, you know, I don't see any benefit to it. First thing I, I, I try to make a parallel to um, a workout regimen um, uh, because the thing is, is like, if you go to the, let's say you have never worked out before, or you haven't worked out in years and you're like, I'm going to become a, a, I'm going to go run a marathon and you go and with no training, you go and you run, you know, six miles or 12 miles or try to, you know, you're, you're just going to hurt yourself. You're not going to see any benefit. It's going to be painful, uncomfortable. Like it, it doesn't work that way. You don't just, you don't just decide you're going to become an athlete, a mental athlete and get into better physical shape and then go do it once or twice or five times and then be like, oh, well, that didn't really work for me. This, you know, it's the same thing with meditation and, and meditation practice. And that's why I use the gym analogy, like going to the gym for your mind or getting a workout, you know, for your mind. Um, there, because it is, it's, it parallels like the timelines as well. Like if you meditate for 20 minutes a day, six or seven days a week for a few weeks, you're going to see a difference. You know, if you do that same practice for six months, you're going to see a real difference. And you do that for a year or two and with a little bit of study, like your whole life is, like your life is going to change. 
for the better. You know, it, it doesn't really matter where you are in your life. There's always the ability to become like a little more aware, a little more compassionate, a little more open, a little more, you know, uh, patient. And, and, and so like this, it's the same thing with, with working out, right? Like if you decide I'm going to go, you know, become a, you know, a competitive, uh, uh, CrossFit dude, you know, like, if you go and you, you try and lift, like do dead, deadlifts without the proper technique and without building up your back muscles, you're going to like pull You're going to pull back muscle, you know, muscle in your back and you'll be out of commission for like six months. You know, it's like you have to learn some of the technique and you have to do it with consistency for you to start to see the, the changes that happen. And, and so like the, making those parallels, I find when I, when I explain that to people that way, it makes sense to them. And they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like it, it's, you know, and I think in some ways, you know, you have to be dedicated enough to want to do it for a few weeks at least, or a few months, you know, and carve out that time in your day. And it doesn't always have to be 20 minutes or 30 or 40 minutes. It can be five or 10 minutes a day, you know, if, if that's all the time you have. But the consistency really matters the same as it would matter if you were like training for a marathon, you know? Um, so I think that's the, the way to that. That's what you say. That's what I say to people who are like, Oh, this isn't really working for me. The other thing that's very common, which you mentioned is they'll say, well, you know, I just can't, I, I just can't sit. It's not working. Like I can't quiet my mind. And, and the thing that I try to explain to people is that you, you're not, you're not trying to sit there and make yourself not think you're sitting there and trying to observe your thoughts. You're trying to be aware of your thoughts. We're not asking you not to think that's what our minds are designed to do. Our minds are designed to think <laughs> like that's how they help us navigate the world. And that is not necessarily a bad thing, but what it, what it is, what, what we are trying to learn to do is we're trying to notice how, um, how often, how easily distracted from the present we are. If we sit down and we say like, oh, our, our, our purpose here is to focus on our attention on the present, to be aware of what's going on in the present, to focus on the breathing, be aware of, of what, what our senses are telling us. That is, if that's the job, that's the, the workout that we're trying to do, you know, the more you notice that your mind is drawing you away from that, the, the better it is, the more opportunities you have to actually come back to the present. And that coming back, that noticing that you're distracted and coming back is the act of meditation. People, when they're beginners, right, they think that meditation is just, um, is just like sitting and doing nothing. Meditation is actually very active. And I know you know this, but like, I feel like it's important to explain that to, to people when they are, don't really know it, you know, because when you see that, when you see that, oh, I need my thoughts, I need my mind to do its thing, and I need to notice what it's doing in order to practice meditation, to practice coming back to my awareness of what's going on right now, as opposed to getting lost in my thoughts about my thoughts about the future or the past. That is the act of meditation. And that is what I like to describe as like doing a mental curl and strengthening your mind's ability to be present. Right. And I, I find that that is, is helpful when talking to people who are like, I can't do this. I can't sit and be, and, and be quiet and quiet my mind. And I say, you don't have to like that. That's the, that's what we're working with. We're, we're here to work with our minds, you know? And yeah. When you're, so in these settings where you're giving these teachings, probably I'd imagine 
mostly to beginner meditators. Um, maybe not. Maybe a lot of the other folks in these corporate settings have experience. These days, a lot of people do have some experience, some exposure to meditation. Are you approached by folks who are trying to, who, who are interested in taking their practice to another level, we'll say, or to kind of continue with it in a way that would incorporate perhaps Buddhist practices? And, you know, do you find that people are um, interested in kind of con- continuing on? Or is it typically, um, you know, folks, I'd imagine it's folks that are very busy that are finding really interested in finding ways to work with their current conditions and to incorporate practice in a way that really enhances their, their current situation. Is that right? Yeah. I I think it's the latter of those two more often. I think more often um, I am working with people who are busy in their lives, working their day jobs. They've carved out some time to sit down and try and learn how to, you know, I think if you're at their beginning, uh, they're trying to de-stress. They're trying to, you know, relax a little bit. They're coming to the practice with the hopes of, you know, kind of getting a bunch of things out of it. You know, not necessarily, not as many people who are coming to it with, um, with a great deal of experience and in their own tradition or whatever. Although I would say, maybe on average, I'd say, you know, 10 to 15% of the people um, maybe 20% of the people that uh, I teach do have a practice, a regular practice, and do have experience. Uh, it's always harder to, you know, to teach a wide variety of, of students, like to- total beginners and experienced practitioners at the same time. Um, but I tend to, in those situations, I tend to focus a little bit more on the beginners because if you're an experienced practitioner, you can sit there and meditate without me helping you, right? Um But I I also think that, you know, um, I've heard John Baker talk about this a lot and that, you know, when Chogyam Trungpa came to uh, this country, he recognized that the, that the message needed to be changed to, to uh, communicate to Westerners, to people in the U S and, and he realized that it needed to be um, sort of taught differently. And one of the things he did is he started teaching this hybrid of shamatha vipassana, mindfulness awareness meditation, which um, is a, an advanced practice in the East in some cases, in, the, in his tradition, right? In the Tibetan uh, Mahayana tradition. And, and he felt that we were ready for it, or that it was good for you know, Westerners. And I think that that was very uh, wise decision on his part. I think that, you know, especially now, I mean, I don't know what it was like in the 60s. I think in the 60s, there was, you know, in the seventies, there was a, a lot more spiritual materialism going on. And, you know, people were really trying to find identity through spirituality as opposed to the opposite of what meditation does, right. Which breaks down the ego. It sort of deconstructs the ego um, if it's done properly. Uh, and, um, but I think that that is, you can sit down now in 2020, we can sit down and we can talk to people and explain to them the same stuff that we're talking about right now. Um, and, and, and I think that people respond to that, you know, pulling back at the curtain of what you're actually doing. You know, um, I, I think that we don't have to lead people step by step necessarily from, you know, like it has to be done this way and you have to be in this a certain posture and you have to do this. I think that, that we can reach more people by adapting, you know, the practice, uh, the teachings to, 
to the an audience today, a sophisticated audience that is not looking for a religion, but wants, you know, a, a practice to help them with their lives. You know, um, I don't know. I, I think that that's, that's uh, uh, something that Chogim Trumpa was very prescient about um, and ahead of his time. And also something that I, uh, you know, really like about um, the way the teachings have been taught to me. It, so is that sort of the intent to behind how you arrived at realizing you wanted to lead these public sits, these public meditations. What, what drew you to decide I want to have a meditation sit in the middle of Times Square, which by the way, I have lived in New York city in various places. I've lived in hell's kitchen, which is adjacent to Times Square. And when I lived there, I made it a point to never walk through Times Square. My goal was to, and I worked on the East side and it would have been a straight shot to just go straight across 42nd street and I wanted nothing to do with Times Square. So I would go like blocks out of my way, put 20 minutes home on my walk just to avoid it. And I, and I, to this day, I, I still try to avoid Times Square. And here you are hosting public med- meditations. It's in Times Square. Yeah, that is, that is spoken like a true New Yorker and what every good New Yorker agrees with you. <laughs> all want to avoid Times Square at all costs. Only if you absolutely have to, do you want to go into Times Square because it's so crowded and busy and just a pain in the ass to get around, you know? And that is exactly why I realized that we needed to do meditations in Times Square. It's, it's because um, one of my favorite uh, sayings that Pema Children uh, says is um, she talks about leaning into the sharp points of life, Right. And that's the whole idea that, that you know, Chogin Trungpa says meditation is not a vacation from annoyance, okay? And, and so what, what a, a big mistake is for people when they, they um, start learn, thinking about meditation or wanting or meditate is they think that they've got to meditate in a quiet space with no distractions and, and they've just got to find a peace. And it's literally, it's just not that. The whole thing is about meditation that you learn is that what you're actually learning to do is you're learning to, to become aware of everything that goes on, including your own discomfort with things, right? And that leaning into the sharp points of life is, is, is learning to, to, to work with discomfort, to work with things that make you uncomfortable, to work with things that hurt you or pain you, to look at them. And, and make friends with them, right? You don't have to do anything with them. You don't have to, it, it's not about not feeling discomfort. It's not about not feeling suffering or pain or any of these, or negative emotions. It's about, it's about instead of running away from them, from trying to get away from these things that make us uncomfortable, it's stopping and turning back to, to those things and looking them right in the eye and saying, why, why is this discomfort here? You know, what is it that makes me uncomfortable? And so when I learned that, that was just an amazing thing. And I, I looked at, and I, I, I looked at, you know, the way people start with meditation. And I was like, Times Square is possibly the most annoying and, and least pleasant place for me to be on any given day. Let me go there and sit down and work with all that stuff that comes up. Because it's not just the the hustle and bustle and the noise and the smells and like the sights and, and the crowds. It's also the, the, um, the 
self-consciousness that comes up when you're sitting in meditation, meditating in public, right? People look at you, people talk about you. Maybe sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But like, even if they're not, you're, you feel self-conscious sitting down in the midst of uh, thousands of people and, and meditating. And that is such a fantastic place to practice, you know, internally a fantastic place to practice, you know, that discomfort, that, that, you know, I think they talk about the charnel grounds in, in, you know, our tradition, in, in my uh, tradition, like it's just a great, uh, annoying place <laughs> to practice. One of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite teachers is, um, it's Ram Dass's quote, and I might've even quoted this in my last podcast episode, but it's, um, the goal is to keep your heart open in hell. So keeping your heart open and, and, and like you said, not necessarily acting on it, not doing anything about it, but also not closing that heart, keeping that pericardium, keeping that heart open in these environments is, is the way, is the way that you are going to be able to work with yourself and your own conditions uh, far more advanced and far more um, well round, in a well-rounded way than you would if you were just, if your practice involves simply retreating or going on retreats, for example, or living in or practicing in an isolated place and just finding the right perfect time to do it, um, that's probably going to you know help you on some level, but ultimately it's not going to, you know, it, it, you're not going to be prepared for the conditions in the way or to meet the conditions that, that conflict within you the most, unless you can kind of begin to contend with these external conditions that can be so distracting, so annoying, uh, pierce through us in that way. So I, I just think there's so much value in that. And I'm challenging myself now, even though I hate Times Square and I've been avoiding Times Square for many years. Next time, you know, next time, next sit you have, you heard it here. I'm going to join it. I promise that. And I'm going to probably be really annoyed for a, a while, but I'm going to make sure I sit there and do whatever I can do in that, in that experience. Cause, cause I think there's just, it's just such a good idea. You know, when I was teaching with Joe Mauricio, one of the things we came out, we were talking about um, titling our talks uh, um, was Meditation for Real Life. And I, I love that title because um, one of the things is, you know, when you go and do a meditation retreat for a week or a month or, you know, whatever, solitary retreats, all these, these, these different kinds of retreats you can do, um, they are typically very quiet, very calm places. And you can really deepen your practice there. They're fantastic. You should all absolutely do them. Um, but the question is like, you know, if you're like a monk in a cave and you go and you spend your life meditating in a cave and then you never interact with anybody, you know, you never interact with the world and you don't take this practice out into the world, then what good is that meditation really doing other than maybe helping you be calm? You know, I mean, it's, you know, there's personal gain from it, but there's, there's something about interacting with the world that is really important about our practice because the, 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 once you have started to see how things, how things really work, then, then the, your interaction with the world is where the, the road meets the rubber rubber meets the road, right? It's like, it's like, it's easy to be like not annoyed when you are by yourself meditating in a room. It's way harder to not be annoyed when your, your mom is nagging you about something and you're a grown person or when your, you know, kid is like acting, you know, is having a temper tantrum or your, 
your partner or your spouse is like, you know, in a bad mood, you know? And, and so like, so that, that whole like meditation in public thing is, is meant to be along those lines. It's, it's, it's interaction with the, with the real world as it happens in real time. You know, it's not theoretical. It's like sitting and working with yourself while you are in the midst of all this stuff. Um, and the, the thing that I want to share that's really interesting about uh, when you sit and you go and meditate in a place like Times Square, which I've now done a number of times, is I think for maybe for most people, when you sit down and, and you meditate, you have a meditation practice, it takes you a few minutes to settle into your, your meditation, right? You, you go from doing whatever you're doing to you're like, okay, I'm going to sit down. You sit down in a chair and you cushion, you put on your timer or you like check the time and then you start meditating. And for me, I find that, um, you know, if I, if my meditation practice, it could take me 10 minutes to, to settle in, right? It's like my mind does calm down after a few minutes. Um, and, and then I, I become more aware of the space, right? This is, um, the mindfulness of breath helps me become more aware because it relaxes me. And with Times Square, when you, when you sit down and you try and meditate in Times Square, I find that the amount of time it takes me to relax in that environment like doubles, right? So instead of 10 minutes to being relaxed in like to, to, to settling into that meditation, it takes me 20 minutes, right? But what happens when I settle into that meditation, suddenly everything around me, it's like the energy changes, right? It feels like the energy changes, but really what's happening is the energy is changing in me. And as I settle, I start, I start becoming less annoyed and, and anxious about what's happening around me. And I stop judging the fact I'd stop sitting there being like, I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm self-conscious. What's going on? Who's that? And I start just actually taking in what's happening. And what's happening, there are all these natural patterns. There are the, the natural ebbs and flows to traffic and crowds and noise and light. The sun changes as you sit there. The lights on the billboards that are lighting up Times Square, they, they, there are these just patterns and just, you know, the experience becomes this much more peaceful kind of, like it feels like almost like a natural pattern of, of the ocean, uh, of waves in the ocean, waves of traffic or, or like the breeze, you know, or the sounds of people. And, and that to me is like, so it's such a great and informative experience, right? Because it, tell, it shows you that even in the middle of like one of the craziest places on the planet that you can find some sense of relaxation and openness and awareness. And when you find that, it's, it's this magical place, <laughs> you know, that I want to avoid at all other times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the goal is get to a place where you don't want to avoid it ever. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 so it's funny because like very often I know that, and I do this myself and I hear it very often, people will make these value judgments about what constitutes um, nature or like a natural uh, event or, or action or item. And in reality, like you just explained it, and actually I was kind of with you on this journey right there as you're explaining with the lights reflecting, it really, it, I mean, it's just an extension of us. It's just, it's just human beings. And we set in motion the lights, the skyscrapers, 
We're driving the cars. We're creating the noise. Um, all of that is simply just functions of the universe that we occupy. Uh, when we don't have the bandwidth or we think we don't have the tolerance to be able to work with that for whatever, because we have, we're siloed in our own sort of current day-to-day uh, suffering of the moment type situation. We, it's like, I don't have time for Times Square. I, I don't have the energy to deal with Times Square. That's too much. Um, and you could find chaos. Or you find negative terms to kind of color. You make value judgments about why it's bad. Because really, in essence, it's like, I'm not the open environment. I'm not the vessel, the vehicle that I need to be to be able to work with the the conditions of Times Square in a way that is neutral, in a way that is just seeing it, um, you know, as as energy forms is kind of what it is. And I think just just doing this practice there to me is just so much value. So it's awesome that you're doing it. It's awesome that you're leading it. And are there other, um, and I want, I, I want to kind of just figure out and discuss kind of what you're up to next and is are more public teachings in the works for you? And are you doing them just in Times Square or do you do them anywhere else? Um, so I've, I've been focused mainly on Times Square um, because I think that it's um, because of that, that really rich, uh, texture of that place, you know? Yeah. Um, but I've been thinking about doing them outdoors as well, maybe going to like parks or the, you know, the waterfront and stuff. I think that that has a, a similar but different kind of quality to it. Um, and I have been thinking about doing different ones. The, the, um, I, I just, uh, from a virtue of standpoint of time, um, I've been teaching more, um, uh, in the professional world, uh, recently. And I, so I think I, I have limited, um, uh, ability to do outdoor sits as well. So I've been focusing a little bit more on that. Um, also because of the pandemic, uh, this year I've been, you know, I canceled the last, uh, first couple of sits for the year. Maybe we'll do one, you know, kind of once we get into the fall, uh, I'm hoping so, um, you know, we can do it six feet. You, you and I can do it. We'll lead it six feet apart. Um, we'll just not bring too many people. That sounds good to me. And just uh, also curious, and, and I want to kind of, we're going to wrap this up in a minute, but uh, do you have an example? I think you'd mentioned, do you have an example of of, uh, of a mindful walkthrough or, or do you have any kind of instructions or directions about the real estate, the, the mindful walkthroughs that you were thinking about leading uh, or any ways that people might have an idea to kind of just acclimate them to what that is? Because I'm sure nobody, or I shouldn't say that, I'm sure somewhere it does exist maybe, but you don't really hear about it very often. So um, I've never heard of it. That's for sure. Yeah, neither have I, but uh, I don't like to talk in extremes. So likely no one's heard of it, but do you have any way that somebody can get acclimated to, to what that is? Um, well, so I think that really what, what I have done in the past uh, is that as we walk into the showing, you know, or either just prior to entering the space or once we get into the space, I think doing it in the space is better. You know, you come into uh, the, the space that you're looking at and taking a little bit of time to actually just relax uh, our bodies, you know, kind of um, focus on becoming aware of what is in the space, um, not trying to let go of the agenda. I was like, do I like this place or do I not like this place? Like, you know, is this place priced well or is it not priced well, you know? And rather than judging everything, actually taking the moment to um, to just be present, usually through a relaxation technique, like focusing on your breath for, for a minute, 
um, and, and letting go of the stories that you want to tell yourself about the space that you're in. And I feel like once you do that, it actually then allows you to open up and, and, and experience the space in a more um, direct way, right? Rather than having the agenda in your head that's constantly like, do I like this? Do I not like this? Is this good? Is this bad? You know? Um, and you can judge all you want after, after you've relaxed a little bit. Right. But, um, that's, that's the way I do it. So I, I will lead people on a, uh, on a, a short guided meditation, um, focusing on a relaxation and, and then just being aware of what you're hearing and seeing and smelling and in the space, um, you know, preferably like short, you know, a couple of minutes long and then going about, you know, doing the tour. Um, and then certainly the other way to do it is if somebody has a practice, then just taking a couple of minutes to, to, to just center yourself and ground yourself in the space in your own practice and then going about the, the, the tour of it. Does that make sense? It, it makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, like I told you, you're already, you have a buyer in me in that regard. So I, I think there's just so much value in, in, in taking that approach. And I'd imagine particularly in New York City, and I was thinking about it from your perspective, Having mindfulness as a real estate agent in New York City, dealing with the preferences, the frenetic nature of the process itself of, you know, the, the, the obviously the people, especially you're dealing with a lot of properties that are high worth. Um, so it's a lot of folks who are extremely busy. Their minds are probably fairly active. There's probably so much, so, so much movement, so much going on with both your clients and also just the other side. And, um, the, the ability to kind of have a, a mindful approach yourself to that situation has to be a benefit. I think almost probably almost necessary in my view, but then also to, to be able to kind of walk uh, your clients through in, in that sort of a way to the extent, to the extent they're interested, to the extent, you know, I'm sure you have to feel that out. It, it, I can only see just tons of benefit from that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it really truly is a, beneficial practice in, in that space, it, you know, it, it can help with in any situation as we both know, but, but uh, when it comes to real estate, it can be very helpful in terms of keying into what is, is truly important to you and what and how a space feels to you, particularly on the residential side, you know, you're talking about a home, you're talking about a place that you want to live and go to put your head down at night and have, you know, have your sort of sanctuary or your refuge, right? And so, so how it feels to you is really important. And, and the only way you can make good decisions about that is being in touch with uh, yourself and in touch with how your heart feels in, in a space and how you, you know, whether your mind is getting in the way of things, you know. And, and I think also for me, you know, from a selfish perspective, if everybody that uh, I did a showing with, you know, uh, wanted to do mindful showings and want to do a little bit of meditation before each showing, it would just mean more meditation and me, myself, becoming more, uh, more present and more aware uh, on a regular basis throughout the day and throughout the week. And I, I would love that. So please come, let's do mindful showings. <laughs> like, I would love to do it. Let, let's hope that becomes more the norm. Yeah. CT, so grateful uh, to know you and grateful for to sit down with you and have this discussion. I really do appreciate it. Um, and hopefully you can come again and sit down with us again on the podcast and we can kind of unpack some of the, some of your practices and some of the other things we didn't get around to go a little bit further. That's great. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. I really, I love talking to you about this stuff and thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you about it.
Of course. And and for anybody listening, if you want to take that mindful tour with CT, you can go to his personal website, carrytomura.com. We'll have this link in the show notes. And of course, if you want to know more about CT's approach to, I'll call it meditation in real life, um, really just kind of breaking down meditation in a way that everybody can access it. He does a great job of it on his website, thesittingproject.org. So, so grateful, man. Thanks again. And uh, hopefully see you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Bye.